I want to begin my sermon in praise of adjectives. Yeah, all right. Yeah, I got an amen on that. So, you know, we could, uh, we could have a world with only nouns and no adjectives, and we would just say things like, that was a flower or a meeting or a fan. But now we can talk about an exquisite flower or a dreary meeting or a zealous fan. Adjectives are great, but sometimes I do misuse them, and apparently I misused one last week that some South Carolina Gamecock fans were delighted that I misused, because I talked a lot about Clemson, and I called Clemson's coach Notorious. So those of you who are chuckling know that Notorious is not a nice thing to say, like Notorious means famous in a bad way, so I misused the adjective, and when you do, it changes the entire meaning. Well, I went looking for an adjective to use in my sermon title today, and it needed to be absolute. Do you know what an absolute adjective is? It's an adjective that needs no and can really take no modifier. You can't have a comparative. It's just a, it's an adjective that in itself goes as far as it can go. So Examples of, of adjectives that don't need a modifier, can't take one, would be dead. You can't be more dead, right? You're either dead or you're not, or perfect. When you think about it, you can't be more or less perfect. You just are perfect. And then some people say pregnant, like you can't be very pregnant, although my friend Megan and some others might disagree with that, uh, but anyway, you're either pregnant or you're not, right? So when I was looking for an adjective that I would use today, I was looking for an absolute adjective, and I would have used the word unique because those of us with sort of, uh, you know, who, who's, who react to grammatical mistakes like fingernails on a chalkboard don't like it when unique is used with a modifier, like that's more unique or very unique. But in truth... Over time, sadly for people like me, some words like unique actually change their meaning. And today it's used as unusual, and therefore something can be more unique or really unique or whatever. But okay, so I couldn't use unique. So I went looking for a word that really is absolute that would be appropriate to describe Jesus. And I came up with the word incomparable. So I would challenge you to think of a way in which something can be more incomparable than something else, right? You really can't. It's either incomparable means without compare. There is nothing else even in the same category, and I think that's a good word to describe Jesus, the incomparable one. The approach to sermons over the next few weeks is going to be a little bit different than our usual style. Typically, I prefer to preach what's called an exegetical or expository sermon, where we take a text of Scripture and we work our way through it. But we're going to be preaching more doctrinal or theological sermons, and we're, we're going through the Apostles' Creed. At the beginning of the year, we did the first part of the Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And now, from now through, uh, right after Easter, we're going to go through this middle part, the middle paragraph of the Creed, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. It's the longest part of the Creed, and so that's why it's going to take us about eight weeks to get through it. Now, Uh, One of the challenges when you're preaching doctrinally is you have to find a scripture that fits what you want to say, which again is always a dangerous way to preach, but uh, that's what we've done. And we chose John 1, 1 through 18. And honestly, I could preach a whole year on this text and not exhaust it. There's so much in this passage, 
And one of the things I love about it is John actually begins with very common universal words. Jesus was the word. He came to bring light. Doesn't matter if you're a human being, doesn't matter where or when you live, you understand words and light. Right? So he begins in a way that broadens his universal appeal to his gospel. And I could preach uh, sermons on that and, and, and have and maybe will again, but that's not where I want our focus. To, what I want our focus on today is these three descriptions or names or titles of Jesus that he introduces here that are paralleled in the Apostles' Creed. So we're going to talk about only begotten or the word begotten and then the word Christ and then the word Jesus, all of which appear in this passage from John 1, 1 through 18. The Apostles' Creed uh, affirms a lot of uh, complex and deep ideas, but there's one word in there that unless you go to church, uh, doesn't really make a lot of sense to you because it's kind of a churchy word. In fact, it's an old churchy word, and that's the word begotten. So you don't go around saying, let me tell you about the children I've begotten, right? Nobody does that. Uh, so this is, the word is known to us for two reasons. One is the Apostles' Creed, and even though some denominations and churches have updated the language a little bit, most still use this word. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. But also, it's John 3.16, right? Almost everybody is familiar with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So I want to ponder this word for a few minutes and ask what exactly does it mean when we say that Jesus is God's only begotten Son? The word appears twice in our text, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'm doing King James because otherwise the language has been updated. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. The word, when used by itself, just the word begat or begotten, refers to the male part in the reproductive process. So the Bible never says that Mary begat Jesus, Mary bore Jesus. It actually doesn't say that Joseph begat Jesus either for that reason. It, it refers to a biological function that goes on. So we have a list of genealogies, lots of several places in the Bible that are the begats, when you read the King James Version. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. So what does that word mean? The word actually uh, has a, a root meaning that is even deeper than the idea of biological reproduction. The root idea is a category or a kind uh, or a group that has something in common. So when I say to you uh, that I, I begat three children, uh, Philip, Kara, and Jenny, even behind the biological aspect of that is the idea that I can't produce children that are other than me, right? They're going to be in some form like me. They're in the same category, the kind as me. Uh, they are going to have my genetic makeup. And that's really more important to the idea of begat than the biology part. It's the category. And the reason that's significant is that when we get to uh, places like we have in front of us and we have a compound word, only begotten, in the Greek monogenes, 
we take that original word which is related to the word genus, G-E-N-U-S, that you remember from biology class, a classification of things, and now we have the only category, all right? So Luke actually uses this same word three times to refer to an only child who was sick or dead, and Jesus raised them. And so he brings this into the story because as terrible as it is for any parent to lose a child or to be afraid of losing a child to illness, there's a different level of emotion and passion when it's the only child, right? So Luke brings this in to say this was the monogenes child three different times in the stories about Jesus. John never uses it in that connection because he has a theological purpose and he only uses it in reference to Jesus as the monogenes, the only son of the father. And interestingly enough, there's no definite article for either monogenes or father. So what the verse actually reads is, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of an only child of a father. So think about that for a minute. He's, he's drawing a parallel. He's going to introduce all the theology to you, but at this point he's just reminding you, I want you to think about what it means to have an only child. This is the only one who uniquely relates to God in that way. The reason he has to do that is because he has just introduced to you to the fact that as many as received him, to them he gave he the power to become the children of God. And we can all be children of God, but there is one who is uniquely related to the Father, and that's Jesus. So that's why one and only or unique or incomparable is actually what John is getting at here. This is an incomparable one who has a relationship with God that cannot be repeated uh, with anyone else. And in the context, he's saying, this is the one who is the Word. The Word was in the beginning with God. The Word was God. Everything that was created was created by this Word. This is the Word who became flesh. This word eternally is in a relationship with the Father that we describe as sonship. It doesn't mean that at any point Jesus was born, you know, physically from God or that God created Jesus. And many different, uh, what we would call heretical ideas about Jesus have arisen from this, like, okay, then Jesus was born, right, because he was begotten. No, the emphasis is on he is the incomparable one. He is the only one who has a relationship with God where eternally he looks to God as his father. So who or what in your life is incomparable? I have two parents and three children and lots of colleagues and friends, including you, but only one wife. She is incomparable as the object of my affection and loyalty. I enjoy a lot of uh, watching sports, uh, a lot of different teams and different kinds of sports, but really the Carolina Panthers are incomparable in terms of my interests. It's the only one I've got to watch every time the whole way through. I eat lots of food, but on my list of the essentials for food, there's really only one, and that's ice cream. It's incomparable at the top of my list of foods. So this is what John is saying about Jesus. The Confucius and Buddha and Muhammad may have had some wise things to say, but Jesus is the incomparable word of God. No one else is in the same category. He's the only one of his kind. This is Jesus, the one and only Son of God. Now, there are other ways that the creed talks about Jesus, and one of them is the word Christ, or in Greek, Christos. So we'll save Lord for next week. I want to spend a few moments on Christ and then on Jesus. 
So these words need explanation, Christ and Jesus, for the opposite reason that begotten needs explanation. Begotten is so unusual that we don't know about it. Christ and Jesus are so common, we tend to skip over them. They just sort of roll off our tongue, and we need to understand what they mean. The word Christ um, is a rarity in that it is a word that started with a general and became specific. Started with lots of applications and became applied to the incomparable one. What I mean by that is the word kreine or creo, the verb in Greek, was used for a wide variety of purposes. So it's a word that just means to spread or rub. So you can creo peanut butter on your bread. Like you just spread it around. It was used in, in, uh, in other uh, ancient sources to, to rub poison at the tip of a spear. So all, that's all it means is to spread something around. So there are words that, that start out general, I mean, start out specific and become general, like Band-Aid. It's a brand, but now everybody just calls a bandage Band-Aid, or Jell-O, right, or Tylenol that started out very specific and then it got broader. This word starts out very broad to describe anything that's rubbed, and eventually it becomes specifically a reference to Jesus. How did that happen? Well, it happened because in the Jewish system, there were two offices that were set apart by the rubbing of oil, the king and the high priest. So, you know, we have different services of inauguration or installation. When the president gets inaugurated, he is inaugurated when he places his hand on the Bible and he repeats the oath of office. We don't have anything physical going on other than the oath of office, his hand on the Bible. But the the, the Jewish people, when they were to designate a, a the high priest or a king would actually have a ceremony in which he would kneel and he would have oil rubbed on his forehead as a sign of two things. One is that this person has been anointed by God. And second, that this person deserves the respect of the people because of that office. And without the rubbing of oil, there was no symbolism. This is someone who has been anointed by God for this office. So there were lots of people in the Old Testament that were anointed in this way as priest or king, but, um, but then when it, it was always like forward-looking or it was a person right in front of you. And then when, when the Jews began to think, you know, like this system isn't working for us, a series of priests and kings, we just long for one Messiah, one anointed one who will combine all of that and be our savior, be both a political and a spiritual leader. So they were looking forward to Christ, and and when it refers to the Messiah, it's always in the future tense. When you flip the page to the New Testament, the word Christ is now a title, it's a name, and it's always in the past tense. The Christ has come, or the Christ is. We're not still waiting for a Messiah or a Christ. The anointed one has come. And I was racking my brain yesterday thinking, I can't think of anywhere in the world today where anybody is called a Christ or the Christ. So here's a word that started out very general, and it became uniquely applied to the incomparable one to Jesus, who is the one-of-a-kind Messiah who has come into the world. So, um, well, let me get on to Jesus, because i got several things i got to do here. I'm watching my clock. So now we come to the most familiar of the names for the incomparable one, Jesus. 
It is by far the most common word in the New Testament applied to him. It appears over 1,200 times, including about 240 in each of the four Gospels, as opposed to the word Christ that only appears fewer than 500 times, and begotten, referring to Jesus, only six times. So this is the one that we call him. And uh, you may maybe occasionally be bothered by the fact that you, somebody does some work for you or, or takes an order or, or works in a company that you work and he's called Jesus. Like I went to Subway and my catering order was taken by Jesus. He wrote his name right there. So Catholics uh, have a slightly different perspective and because about 80% of Mexicans are Catholic when they come to our country, they tend to adopt that. And for them, this is a way of honoring a child. To me, it puts a lot of expectations on your child if you call him Jesus, right? But Jesus is actually a very common name in the Mexican Catholic culture. And that shouldn't bother you, and let me tell you why. When God, when God sent the angel Gabriel to Mary and Joseph and said, I want you to name him Jesus, he wasn't picking a random name that nobody had ever used before. He was using a very common name because Joshua in the Old Testament means Jesus. Many people had been named after Joshua, Hoshea, and then in the Greek language, Jesus. So Jesus, God specifically didn't say, I'm going to pick a name that nobody's heard of. He just said, I'm going to pick a name that everybody knows is common, Jesus. You you see why that's wonderful? You have the incomparable one who is the unique son of God, who is the one and only Christos, and you get to call him by an average, ordinary name, Jesus. It's like he wants you to cozy up to this Jesus. It's kind of like calling him Bob. Right? If you, if you call me Reverend Thompson or the Reverend Dr. Robert Marshall Thompson, I'm going to go, that's great, but we're not very good friends. When you call me Bob, you know that I know that we have a relationship, that there's an, an expectation that we know one another, we care about one another. Something goes on there. And this is what God is doing in the name Jesus. He's saying, yes, he is totally the other, but he is also going to be your very best friend. The name means Jehovah saves. And the one who saves you is the one with whom you can have an intimate and personal relationship. And yes, you can call him Jesus, and he loves that. So I was trying to figure out where I would go with the end of this sermon about Jesus, and I started thinking about uh, songs that have been written through the years about Jesus. And so I put on my Facebook pretty late yesterday afternoon uh, a request for some favorite songs about the name of Jesus. And I decided wouldn't be any better way to finish this sermon than just to have a few songs about Jesus. I'll sing some of them. Well, after 53 suggestions, I decided maybe I shouldn't use all of them. All right, so, but I'm just going to sing a few songs about the name of Jesus. And if they're familiar to you, you can sing right along with me. These are not, Peter's not going to play on the organ. I'm just going to go from one right into the other. And my purpose, again, is to get you thinking about the wonder of this name and who he is to us and how people have expressed this in their songs. Jesus, joy of man's desiring, Holy wisdom, love most bright, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, while the nearer waters roll, while 
while the tempest still is high. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth a royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see, and in thy presence rest. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O Thou of God and man, the Son. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him o'er and o'er, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. One Linda and I sang at our wedding as a duet. Let me come closer to thee, Lord Jesus, oh, closer day by day. Let me lean harder on thee, Lord Jesus, Yes, harder all the way. This next one was written by Will Thompson, and he's in the room, but this was written like 120 years ago. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. Jesus is the sweetest name I know, and he's just the same as his lovely name, and that's the reason why I love him so, for Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, name above all names, beautiful Savior, glorious Lord, Emmanuel, God is with us, blessed Redeemer, living Word. Shine, Jesus, shine, fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze, set our hearts on fire. And the one I messed up in 830, let's see if I do better. What a beautiful name it is, nothing compares to this. 
What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. And then the one I skipped at 8.30 that uh, was so disappointing to Wayne Miller. I knew you were going to sing that song and you didn't. So here we go. Are you ready? Jesus, take the wheel, take it from my hands, because I can't do it on my own. I'm letting go, so give me one more chance and save me from this road I'm on. Jesus, take the wheel. There you go. Did it for you. Last night we had a wedding in this sanctuary, and uh, the groom had written about his bride-to-be, she is my death row meal. I thought, well, now that's the most unusual description of a groom I think I've ever heard. And he went on to describe his favorite foods, and then he said, like, she is so scrumptious and delicious, she's just amazing, I can't believe she's going to marry me. He was a little nervous before the service, and uh, I noticed that, and we came out here as we always do for a wedding, and then something happened that's never happened to me before, but he started to get a little weak-kneed, like when I was at the beginning of the service, will you take this woman to be your wife? And he said the right words, but he's kind of like getting uh, lower to the ground. And when I went to the dad and said, will, uh, who gives this woman to be married to this man, the groom keeled all the way over backwards and he was flat on his back right here, down, right down there. And I know there are probably different factors. By the way, we got through the wedding. He revived. He looked great. We uh, did all the message and the vows and they're married and he danced fine at the wedding. But in that moment, I know there were probably lots of different factors, but one of them was like, I'm sure, I'm just, I can't believe this woman this woman, my death row meal, she loves me. Like that makes me weak at the knees. And I was just thinking, you know, what a beautiful way to think about Jesus. You realize this one who is the incomparable one, the only son of the Father, the Christ is Jesus to you. And he wants you to know him and love him and trust him. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Let us pray. Lord, I know there are people that in this moment, in this sanctuary, are struggling with some aspect of life where they just need the incomparable one. They need Jesus. They need intimacy, but they also need wonder at who he is. We all do, but there are some that are feeling that particularly at this moment. And I pray your blessing on them in particular, that those who have come hungering for the word of God will find courage and hope and trust. And thank you that this Jesus is the one who saves us because he died for our sins and rose again. He is our only Savior. We put our trust and confidence in him, and we pray as he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I hope each week as we talk about what these words mean, that they will become richer and fuller to you in your expression of your faith. So stand with me. And as we say the Apostles' Creed, I especially want some energy that's not like, 
you know, first day of the new time change energy. I want some energy around this beginning of the second paragraph of the creed. Let us affirm our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.